very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to all of tonight's interview and all of our material, you know what to do. Go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. It's time that you give yourself the gift of truth. And tonight we have a non-traditional interview. There was supposed to be a conversation, but I decided after being overwhelmed by so many emails coming from you to air it as is. But before I tell you about tonight's special guest, let me read a quote by Carl Sagan. Who is more humble? The scientist who looks at the universe with an open mind and accepts whatever the universe has to teach us. Or somebody who says, everything in this book must be considered the literal truth and never mind the fallibility of all the human beings involved think about this quote when you listen to tonight's interview tonight's special guest is randy kramer also known as captain k he is allegedly a u.s marine and super soldier who served for 17 years on mars defending the mars colonies he was a part of Project Moonshadow and was assigned to the Mars Defense Force from a covert military branch, the United States Marine Corps Special Section, set up by President Eisenhower as a unit that would uphold more ethics and hopefully keep things in check in regards to the activity of MJ-12 and some of their more unscrupulous members. His story, information, and accounts gives us insight into things that other whistleblowers have been speaking about in relation to Alternative 3 on the establishment of bases on Mars. Since he has spoken out because his chain of command requested him to do so, he is less of a whistleblower and more of a direct representative of the United States Marine Corps Special Section. He has experiences that take us into an in-depth understanding of ET races that are interacting with Earth covert agendas that are affecting the whole of humanity and information about off-planet military activity that has been kept deep black and that he is now sharing with us. And here's my unedited conversation with Randy Kramer. Hello, Randy. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for taking this uh, informal call. I'm open-minded enough to listen to your story. So why don't we start, first of all, I've heard of your name, Captain K, or actually Randy Kramer. That that's a name. That's your that's your real name. Correct. That is my real name, and uh, I was <clears throat> really for just a short interim period of time uh, where I didn't really feel that I was personally prepared, just with sort of everything that was happening in my world to go like public, public. But uh, I had been speaking with Dr. Michael Sala, and he was very interested. Uh, in sort of doing an interview and we ended up doing this sort of five part, five and a half hour thing over a four or five day period. Um, and just because I knew it was going to be sort of a matter of a few months or so before I really felt like I could be ready for whatever backlash I might be, which I kind of haven't gotten. So the backlash maybe that I was sort of expecting or anticipating I haven't gotten, which is great. Uh, I should say. But uh, because I felt like it was going to be, uh, you know, three, four months or something from point A to point B, 
I went ahead and just said, well, let's do a little pseudonym for now, and then in a few months we can go ahead and put my real name on it. So there was just because of circumstances of when my chain of command, you know, requested slash gave me permission to speak publicly and the amount of time that I felt like before I was personally ready for any real consequences of that. Uh, and then once I felt like I was sort of more prepared, uh, then I went ahead and just uh, decided let's go ahead and use my actual name. Uh, and interestingly enough, when I talked to Michael Sala, gosh, and this would have been, you know, back in May or June or something, when I said, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, let's uh, put up the interview that we did with my actual, my face on it, my name. And he went back to the original audio video files that he had uh, of the interview that we did because we had put up just the, uh, essentially like a, a you know, a, a YouTube video that had the video blanked out with some other graphics or something in there and then the audio portion. So the original was just a regular audio video Skype uh, video file, call file. And when he went back to go get the original file to re-release that, mysteriously, you know, air quotes, mysteriously found that all of the audio portions from all the original files had been deleted. And so we basically couldn't use the original audio video five and a half hour that we recorded because it was essentially tampered with so that we weren't able to use this. So we did a little short uh, audio video after that that we could put up, post that, and then we still have the original interview. And then I've done a bunch of subsequent things. But that's just a little story of how that happened. Understood. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> sorry. So, yeah. Un uh, understood. Yeah, I'm actually using my, my actual name and rank with the United States Marine Corps Special Section at the moment, which I'm feeling that it's important that I should just point out again and again and again until I make this perfectly clear. Uh, by doing that, I'm making a much more uh, important sort of claim and a much more personally responsible claim than if I were just saying that I knew something or I had been somewhere or, you know, had an, a contact the experience whatsoever. As soon as I make claim and say that it's my sworn testimony that I am also a United States military officer doing so, if I'm lying, I'm, you know, impersonating an officer committing a felony or committing fraud or lying under the UCMJ or something. So uh, I need to, I think it's important for people to understand who even may be questioning whether they want to believe my veracity and so forth or not, that I'm not just a guy making a claim. It's just, you know, I am saying it's my sworn testimony that I am a United States Marine Corps Special Section Officer. And if I'm lying, I'm committing a felony. And no one has come to tell me, you know, the Marine Corps has not come to tell me to stop and, and you know, that, hey, you're breaking the law. No one has done anything of the kind. So I can only presume it's because they know that I'm not. But for people who are really, you know, want to be skeptical or doubting, should understand that uh, it's, I'm, I'm liable by doing what I'm doing and saying what I'm saying. And if I was a liar, then I would be committing a felony. Great. Let's start from the beginning. And I hope that some of my questions won't be offending you. Basically, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Or the name of our radio program is Veritas, which means truth. You know, we've had people in the past that, you know, we haven't been able to confirm. You know, let me give you an example. Uh, you probably know who Andy Bashago is. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Good man. Great attorney. Yeah. Great story. Probably one of the most uh, popular interviews that I have ever done at the same time. There's nothing that we can really touch. So a lot of people just uh, wonder if what he's saying was, was it mind control? Was it Project Monarch, Project you know, MK Ultra? What was it? In your case, I want to dig deeper, if I might. And that's why I'm saying right from the beginning, I hope that you don't get offended by some of my questions. First, first question I have for you is, if I were to validate you, would you be able to provide a DD-214? Um, no, and I'll tell you why. Uh, at the current time, my records are unavailable. Um, I am in a process with an attorney and with my congressman's office uh, going protocols, which I understand to be the correct protocols, to go after this paperwork, being that it was in an unacknowledged special access program, as was suggested to me by a military officer who uh, used to be with JAG Division, who said, you know, you have to go through your congressman's office, make this request to this division, and so on and so forth. So we've been in that process for a few years, and I don't expect it to go any faster than it's going, uh, unfortunately, at the moment. But 
Uh, I do have legal representation behind that, and we are absolutely doing what we can to attain whatever records, redacted, whole, in part, or whatever that we can. Uh, and all I can say to anyone, again, who wants to see that information right now, well, I'm doing everything that I understand in the legal bureaucratic process that I know to do that, to get that paperwork. And until then, I certainly have some correspondences and paperwork to verify that, uh, you know, to go back and forth between my congressman's office and so forth and various archives, archive agencies looking for the paperwork and such. So it's it's not like that's a fabrication that I'm just making up. I do have some paperwork and documentation to show that. But at this point, we have not been able to get to the actual archive or department that has my records for various reasons, which I don't want to discuss at the moment. Uh, and for for the layman, for the layman who may wonder what what does DD Form Two Fourteen means, it's the right. discharge papers and separation documents from you know the military. And hopefully, once you get that settled, I would love to see a copy of that. Is there any anything else? document-wise that you could uh, provide in order to validate at least that you are or were a member of the military, U.S. Uh, military? Again, I, they're just the paperwork that we've been able to sort of go back and forth with my congressman's office, but um, no, there's really nothing at this point that I can provide. And all I can emphasize is that we are dealing with incredibly deep black covert unacknowledged special access program documentation. So that would be a good reason why we're having a hard time getting to it right away. Uh, but again, I want to reemphasize, uh, that if I'm lying, if I'm making this story up, if I'm claiming to be an officer when I'm not, I am committing a felony under U.S. code. I am a criminal and no one has come to me and said, Hey, you must cease and desist or you're acting as a criminal which they would if I were lying. So that, that is really what we have to call absence, uh, a- evidence in the negative, which because, because no one has knocked on my door to arrest me, no one sent letters to me, uh, that in itself is a verification that I am, in fact, a United States Marine Corps Special Section officer, as I claim, or I would be arrested for claiming uh, falsely. I, I would be committing a crime. So I, I'm still working on getting out of that paperwork, and I, I understand people want to see it, and as soon as I have it, I will do my very best to make whatever I can of it available. But I really want to emphasize uh, the legal and very specific, you know, sort of inescapable logical point here that if I am lying or making up stories here, I am committing a felonious crime, and I would be arrested or told to cease and desist, and that has not happened. And the branch of the military that you served was the U.S. Marine Corps? Uh, United States Marine Corps Special Section, which is not exactly the United States Marine Corps as branch. It is a separate branch of the United States government uh, military branch that was basically formed in 1953 uh, when Dwight, President Dwight Eisenhower signed it into a law through a secret executive order so that there would be a responsive military intelligence apparatus which had a, a, its own code to sort of be owed to and, and to be beholden to. Uh, that would be specifically designed to respond, deal with, uh, and have the various military intelligence response to anything extraterrestrial or exo in nature. Let's start from the beginning. I like to go in chronological order. And I'm going to shoot, you know, questions really fast. The branch of the military that you enlisted, when, when did you enlist, first of all? when, when Give us a little bit of be- background before you entered the military, actually. Um, well, that's sort of an interesting point uh, because I never enlisted. Uh, I was genetically engineered from the ground up in a program that was developed in the very late 1960s. Uh, so essentially, I was born into a genetically augmented uh, system into a program uh, to create super soldiers from the very ground up. So I, I was born uh, a Marine, United States Marine uh, Special Section. Okay, then tell us... I hate to use the word born or, or, I mean, were you cloned? Tell me the specifics as to how you became to be. Um, well, my best understanding of it is that the technology that has essentially been both reverse engineered and shared and cooperated and used since the 1940s, post-World War II era when the covert space program really got underway, uh, the covert military space program. Which started in the 40s, got way ahead before the civilian program that started in the 60s. Uh, and we were certainly being assisted by extraterrestrial scientists and engineers at that time, as well as having the ability to have access to technology, reverse engineering technology that was pretty advanced. So, um, 
we definitely had some pretty sophisticated stuff by the late 1940s uh, and the 1950s. And so what really got into swing by the full 1960s was the genetic engineering uh, and the super soldier programs. So I would say throughout the early and mid-1960s was the early days of the um, military genetically engineered super soldier programs, which are some of the most classified uh, programs ever. So people who are also uh, skeptical or want to see paperwork, I also have to point out that because we're talking about covert uh, super soldier programs, we're talking about some of the most classified material ever, which is really hard to get at because it really caught, has to, <clears throat> it causes those who would have to get to that information to admit that they have been involved in horrendous war crimes and crimes against persons uh, from a very, very young age that we consider as a Western society and a legal society to be very, very wrong and illegal. But since they started turning the sort of a blind eye here and there way back, it just escalated into turning a, a huge blind eye here and there and engaging in activities that were highly questionably uh, unethical, moral, etc. But morally questionable, definitely. Do you have a birth certificate? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I know I was born in a hospital, uh, you know, to two parents who, you know, are still alive and can verify that that happened. And, oh, yeah. So so I was born in a hospital, and I can certainly verify that I was born on U.S. soil, and I have a birth certificate, and that, that's my name is Randy Kramer. Yeah, certainly. My next question was, do you have any real parents, because you keep talking about genetically being engineered. Uh, did you have a normal, you know, childhood with two parents and so on? Yeah, absolutely. No, I have an older brother and sister, uh, and regular mother and father, um, grew up in a pretty normal working middle class family. Uh, my parents are, you know, good people, smart. We went to church on Sunday for most of my childhood and my upbringing. Um, went to public school, lived in a pretty normal, you know, kind of suburbanish neighborhood in a town of you know, maybe a hundred, little over a hundred thousand or something like that. So We're, pretty normal childhood. I'd like this other than, you know, the super soldier program, pretty normal childhood otherwise. Were either of your parents involved with any governmental uh, activities? No, no. They were actually had no knowledge of this until recently. Um, being that I had already just been decided that I was going to go public and that I was doing that and I had done radio interviews and I was doing this television thing. Uh, and I had not really fully disclosed to my parents everything that they needed to know. And I, I really decided to myself a number of weeks back here that I had to just sit down and give them a briefing. So I uh, spent about three, three and a half hours with my whiteboard up and you know, giving my folks a briefing and explaining, well, I know you know something's been up because you know your son is you know smart and up to something, but he hasn't been telling you what he's been up to. So here, let me tell you what's been happening. Uh, and they were incredibly understanding and supportive, and I tried to follow the arc of information so they could understand it uh, from front to back, and, you know, they've been doing a really good job of processing it, but they are getting older. Uh, they're doing all right, you know, for people their age, for sure. My mom just took a tumble and got a hip replacement that she's recovering. Um, so they're otherwise, you know, pretty normal folk, and they could certainly attest to some of the normal things uh, that about my life. And there, you know, some of the weirder and stranger things that were happening when I was a child, they were certainly aware of, but we didn't have any understanding, you know, at that time that the marks and the bruises and the hematomas and so forth were coming from actual procedures of a kind. They were just very strange. Hmm, where did that come from again? In what year were you born and what city and state did you grow up in? Uh, I was born in 1970, and I grew up in Eugene, Oregon. Okay. And you're still living in Oregon, I believe? Uh, moved back here a little while ago, yeah. So okay. So I was away for a very, very long time, but so, yeah, I'm back in Oregon at the moment. 1970. Now, let's start fast-forwarding. Tell me of your first years of life uh, that started becoming non-traditional. Um, well, the training program really started in early, early childhood. My earliest memories uh, are really, as an infant, um, you know, like in a bassinet, in a row of other bassinets with infants with a sort of a large, uh, what do we want to call it, a planet, almost like a planetarium screen, except it's, 
not just stars. They're actually projecting all of this sort of random information and, you know, physics equations and so forth and playing classical music. Again, this is the old days, so they were sort of thinking, you know, yeah, play classical music and show equations for the babies and maybe it'll stick or something. But that's like my earliest memory of uh, the actual super soldier training program was, you know, as an infant in a bassinet. So some of the earliest, earliest physical memories of moving around and doing things, three and a half, four years old, five years old, goes back very, very far. Uh, and those earlier, earliest memories, the program, you know, wasn't like violent, you know, super soldier kind of stuff. It was more like kids playing games and learning how to sort of have group dynamic and group activity, work as a team, that sort of thing. Uh, so all of the early, early training and childhood training was not like, crazy traumatic so much as just very um, focused, you know, kind of group activity and group dynamic and training exercises for very, very small and young children. If all this was happening when you were just uh, five years old, were either you're, you're saying that your parents were not aware of all of this, where were they during the time you were being experimented on? Um, you, most of the time, this would have been occurring uh, in the middle of the night. And the localized wormhole technology allows for someone to make a portal that can essentially come right into the middle of your bedroom in the middle of the night and pull you through it. And you can go to a place where you can end up going through a number of uh, training activities during the night. But because I know this gets kind of loopy for some people, but because temporal mechanics or time travel becomes involved here, the ability to take people away or engage them in virtual experiences in which the rate of time moves differently from when they return allows them to experience hours, days, or even weeks of training in a period from, you know, let's say 1.30 in the morning until 2.30 in the morning, you know, essentially what is an hour in, in actual, in sort of relative time where the parents are experiencing their bedrooms and siblings may be, but, you know, quantum dilation uh, you know, with 18 hours or something of training in the program. So the technology really is and has been advanced for such a very, very long time that the ability for them to do this thing with complete stealth so that even the members of your own family and your own household, I know as crazy as that sounds, have not an inkling uh, that that is going on at the time. Not Are you yet. saying that we have the ability, do we have the technology to bend time and space, therefore time travel, time traveling is, is possible? Since the 40s or 50s, we've, we've been certainly tinkering with it and been having access to uh, that type of technology, absolutely. I couldn't tell you when we sort of, you know, mastered or really started using that technology practically, but we've absolutely been using it for decades, and yes, definitely, definitely. Okay, so you were five years old. What happened after? Um, again, you know, uh, childhood, adolescence, uh, the training process, just got more militant, I would say, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat, weaponized combat, small arms combat, various, you know, uh, sticks and pointy things and different types of small pistols, rifles, submachine guns, some pretty crazy stuff for, but, you know, not like adult size stuff. We're, I hate to sort of describe, but I mean, you know, nine-year-olds using sort of like nine-year-old size submachine guns. Um, and uh, essentially just getting, again, more and more intense and militarized and violent as it got into the teenage years uh, until by sort of 14, 15, real bloodshed is happening at that point. So, you know, there's a lot of... Hold that thought about the bloodshed for a moment. You know, from, from 5 to 10 to 15, were you being taken the same way with the same technology? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. On a regular basis. Not every night of, you know, every week, but on a very consistent basis. Did you have recollection of what was happening? Were you talking to somebody about these events that were happening? And these were not dreams, were they? No, 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 absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> certainly what was happening at the time, I would wake up sometimes exhausted uh, from, you know, doing some really intense mental physical activities, but not being aware that I've been doing physical mental activities. Uh, again, the marks, the bruises, burns, hematomas, um, you know, marks that were definitely a sign that something very physical and very real was happening. Uh, and then not just, you know, rolling over and bumping yourself in the night, but, you know, real, you know, again, hematomas where you clearly 
you know, uh, an injection was either something was put in or something was taken out in locations on the body where were the only places you would do that if you were doing that, but these things that would appear overnight without having gone to scheduled doctor visits or had scheduled medical appointments with anyone and, you know, showing my parents and going, I don't know where these bruises came from or where did this burn come from? Uh, so, you know, all of those very physical phenomena were occurring and mostly what was happening mentally and emotionally was remembering parts of it uh, when I was dreaming or remembering parts of it when I would wake up, but mostly really being filled with a sense of dismissal of the entire thing. So even though it was happening, I would say, you know, my entire, almost the entire process of it happening during my adolescence and teenage years, I was in just as much denial of it as anybody else would have been. Uh, it just seemed ridiculously outlandish for me to accept when these things would happen in this very, very real way, or I would have a memory in this very, very real and visceral way, you know, just like heart pounding, pumping, you know, you know, adrenaline pumping experiences. Um, but would just kind of rationalize to myself, well, how is that possible? And, you know, because I wasn't able to necessarily really work out, uh, in rational thinking or really just accept it. You know, it, there's really a point of just saying, well, I have to accept that A and B happened. Or I'm going to find some reason to say, no, I was just having another one of those weird nightmares uh, that leaves, you know, bruises and marks and scars and burns. How was uh, life in high school? And did you confide any of this in, you know, to any friend, any relative? Um, no, you know, I mean, I was a pretty, I don't know, I want to say I was a pretty stoic kid. I've always been pretty stoic in the sense that, you know, I don't really show a ton of reaction or emotional reaction. I mean, I have plenty, believe me, of emotions and reactions to things, but I just tend to be very stoic in my response. I tend to be very, you know, um, even in my response to things. So even as a young person, I was just kept a lot of it to myself uh, and conversations that I had with people about anything that I felt was, you know, like, well, maybe I can say something or introduce a question here. But you really find pretty early that the second you are having a conversation with someone where they think you might be seriously telling them that you might have had an experience like that that was real is the second that they're going to think you're nuts. Um, because for people... In, That's why I asked you. Yeah. So, no, I mean, I, I, I was smart enough uh, to know not to just go around telling everybody what I was thinking or feeling all the time, you know, knowing that that, that was going to get scrutiny that I didn't necessarily want or need. So I certainly had my own process. Um, you know, I... I I can remember a lot of, boy, I guess I can really say I'm just so glad that all this got thrown away, trashed, or burned at some point. But I think, you know, my teenage years, I wrote a lot. I wrote a lot of bad poetry, you know, trying to, like, sort of sort out what was happening with myself. Uh, and drew weird pictures and things that uh, were trying to get at something, trying to figure out what was going on, what was, what was the connection between the memories and the emotions and the physical experiences and the physiological memory and experiences versus, uh, you know, physical marks and, you know, versus what could or could not be. And, you know, this again is, you know, what I'm thinking when I'm a kid and early teens, we're talking seventies and eighties still. So the notion, you know, that we have a covert military space program that's doing this kind of thing is pretty much not even talked about. Uh, at this stage. So even the notion as I'm going through this experience that any other human being that I, I ever even heard or people weren't even publishing, I really have much at the time, certainly about military super soldier programs, I don't believe so, certainly not talking about it. So it was anything but real. It was fiction, movies, comic books, but, you know, and nightmares and the stuff of my nightmares, but the notion that it was real in a day-to-day -day sense, um, you know, I was I was not having a really good time with. I will have to say I had a best friend who's still a very, very good friend of mine. And, you know, we had some very strange conversations, you know, as 11 and 12 and 13 year olds. And um, he certainly known me that entire time. And when we were old enough that I could 
have processed a lot of this and go, okay, you know, I think I can explain a lot of the weird stuff that was happening when we were kids. I, I think this is what my memories have concluded and kind of went, you know, here's what I think is happening, military super soldier program, and we went, oh. So you, graduated from so you graduated from high school what year? Uh, 1988. 1988. And immediately after, did uh, you, you said that you didn't enlist, you didn't join. What happened after graduating from high school? Actually, it happened before high school graduation on the night of November the 17th, 1987, which would really be sort of the morning of November the 18th, 1987, between 2.30 a.m. and 2.45 a.m. Uh, I was taken in what would be a normal process, you know, via wormhole, localized wormhole phenomenon out of my room to what I would normally be, you know, training phenomena. But at that point was taken to uh, Luna Operations Command and told, you know, you're going on a 20-year tour, and that was when I did my 20-year tour and then returned, like I said, at 2.45 a.m. Uh, after being age-reversed and or put into a younger body. That's still questionable, which is the A or B of that. Uh, and then essentially woke up the next day 20 years older, not looking a day older, and absolutely horribly emotionally, psychologically traumatized from 20 years of bloody, horrible, violent war and conflict. So with all of the memories and emotions and trauma of that, and almost none of the actual memories, except again, tons and tons of nightmares, and what began an immediate process of trying to understand and self-discover that, because I knew immediately something was horribly, horribly horribly wrong, and I'd, I've been made it meditating since I was 10 years old, so, you know, I woke up the next day knowing something was horribly, horribly wrong, and, you know, meditating the next evening, realizing something very, 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 very wrong and bad. And this is, this is when, so are you saying that... Yeah, 1987. 1987, and then you were taking for, you're saying, 20 years, but you were returned when, in, in real time? Uh, again, taken out at 2.30 a.m., November the 18th, 1987, returned at 2.45, November 18th, 1987. So there's like a 15-minute uh, time span in what we would call... Missing time. This this time. Well, no, that's it's a 15-minute passage rule we sort of would think of as collective time, but my quantum dilation for that 15 minutes is over 20 years. So I know it's a little hard. It's quantum mechanics and it's temporal mechanics. It's hard to understand sometimes. But, you know, there's a 15-minute period when what you and I are now ex experiencing as normal time would be 15 minutes. But for me, it was not 15 minutes. It was a 20-year tour of duty physically, not just mentally or some kind of metaphysically. It was an actual physical, temporal 20-year tour of duty. So just for a few minutes in real time, it was actually 20 years in your mind. What happened from 19... No, no, no. Again, it was physical. They returned me physically 15 minutes, what would be 15 minutes later in your this time. But no, I had our... We, me, everyone who had been, you know, during that tour of that 20-year tour had passed a physical material time from 1987 to 2007 and then returned to 1987 15 minutes after you left. Does that make more sense? I'm sorry. Really yeah, no, that's fine. I get, I get it now. Um, so 20 years went by, but you were returned in what was still 1987. What right. happened in our real time here from 1987 until now? What happened after? And we'll go back to, to the 20 years that you were taken, but sure. let's talk about the real 1987 till now. What happened? Um, well, you know, sort of the second, I wouldn't call it the real, I would call it the second time I went through that period of time in okay. my life. It was basically... Uh, I say 20-year tour of duty, 20-year healing process. So pretty much from 1987 to 2007 is just me trying to get my center and my grounding and heal myself from the 20-year tour of duty that just happened. And did, did you have a regular job? Did you go to school? What did you do during that time? Did some school, did lots of different work, um, you know, did lots of different things. Not much consistent anything because, uh, again, suffering from pretty horrible post-traumatic stress disorder that had a long list of symptoms from insomnia, migraines, agoraphobia, don't like crowds, uh, you know, like a, a fibro the fibromyalgia, uh, just a bunch of symptoms that were making life next to horribly intolerable. Do you feel right now you must be uh, 43 or 44, correct? 
uh, again, from 1970 now would make me 44. But again, with the quantum dilation, I'm like 72 and change. Well, that's what I'm saying. Do you feel 40-some or do you feel 60-some or 70-some? Well, I mean, both, because my body is like really the physical body that I've been put into is the same age as... But your mind. Born in 1970. So I have a 44-year-old body. But no, my actual mental chronological experience is, yeah, over 70 years old, like 72 and change. So it's a combination. I feel lucky in that sense. I feel like, like the luckiest guy in the world because I am an old, old man in a very young body. Right. It's, uh, it's giving you a second lease in life in many ways with the experience yeah. of a 60-some. You know, I, you understand how when you tell the story, especially with the part about 20 years that you spent, but you came back the same just a few minutes later after you were taken, you understand how anybody who's listening is saying right now, how can we possibly believe this? Sure. What do you tell them? Well, again, you know, I try and go with the arc of history and explain to people, look, I realize you grew up in a world where you went to grade school and junior high and high school where you were taught Here's what our limits of science are. Here's what our limits of physics are. Here's what our limits of space travel are. Here are the things we've done. And anything beyond that, we haven't done. It's all interesting stuff we're thinking about doing. It's fantasy. Maybe we're going to do it in the future. But that was the world that I grew up in, you know, in school and my family and my household. You grew up in and just, you know, everybody in this world uh, who's, you know, older than, you know, 15 or 20 we grew up in a world where, we had a spam in a can space program of rockets and, you know, eventually shuttlecraft, but nothing else. And we didn't have all this advanced, uh, no admission of this, any, and not as nearly as much talk about the conspiratorial nature of the hidden projects of extraterrestrial programs and the science and the technology that was involved in that. So I understand for people that, you know, you grew up in a day in an era and went to school in a place where one thing was real and the other thing was simply not. And all I really have to say to that is we now live in a time and a place where information is so flourishing and uh, what has been able to be told through uh, the Internet and through cable television is we know a ton more information. And because we know a ton more information, we know that there actually was a Nazi reverse engineering uh, alien reproduction vehicle program to make sort of flying disc uh, vehicles. The uh, Russian intelligence has doc that documentation. They've done a fabulous documentary on the Nazi uh, covert space program and how this you know tiny bit of what was left of the Nazi apparatus went to a base in Antarctica. They've got the film reels. A ton again of intelligence information from when they got uh, into Germany, as well as what they've gleaned over the years, that demonstrate in a way that's way beyond just you know I got a conspiracy theory or I heard something. You know, you've got Russian intelligence officers who are talking quite frankly about how no, it's just a foregone you know fact that we know from this intelligence information that the Nazi apparatus did not surrender at the end of World War II. They escaped at Antarctica with their reverse engineered alien reproduction vehicle technology. We sent um, Admiral Byrd down there as part of Operation High Jump, mm -hmm. which was supposed to sort of deal with this Nazi program. That's part of the public record. We have film reel of that of Admiral Byrd talking about the military nature of that uh, operation. We know that they got their butt kicked like really fast and had to come back within a few weeks instead of what was supposed to be a many, many month uh, journey. Uh, and we know from that point on that there was the covert military space program and that we were on the moon way, you know, in the 50s and we were touched on Mars in the 60s. Uh, we had advanced propulsion and advanced technology that we were working on way, way, way back. And so I understand that people who, you know, are having a hard time with this uh, it's because you grew up in a time and place when you simply, this wasn't real. And you were told that a whole other thing is real. And we just live in an era now where that information is available. If you're really skeptical, there's a bunch of great documentary and evidence that a lot of fabulous intelligent people have, have put together that show that this alternative explanation uh, that should be what we're taught in schools anymore in our, in our classrooms, but, you know, not. Uh, of what happened in history, which is extraterrestrial contact and a covert military space program in the 40s, not after that, 
and everything that happened from the 40s and the 50s and the 60s is really around that as a center of everything that's occurred uh, militarily, politically, socioeconomically in the United States of America and on planet Earth has at the core of it this covert military secret space program, which has been the all-encompassing everything that nobody's known about except the people who are involved in it and some of their family members. And as that information has come out decades later, we're 70 years into it. 70 years into it. It's happened. It's been going on since longer than I've been alive, you've been alive, and so many other people who are listening you know, have been alive. It, in some ways, it seems a little incredible to go, what? How could I not know but that? But you're right in that. You're right. I just to say to any person in the civilian population, uh, if you are not a cleared, meaning you don't have a classification as a military intelligence person to know these things, you shouldn't be so shocked that you don't know because you are an unranked civilian with no security clearance. That's why you don't know. You're right in that information is flourishing in a way. At the same time, the same could be said about misinformation, True. disinformation. It's a minefield out there. On a daily basis, I get news, I get pictures, I get photographs from all over the world. And, you know, 99.9%, you know what they are. So you have to be very careful before you embrace something like this because credibility comes into, you know, into question. That's why I'm, I'm dealing with this conversation with you and I with an open-minded and skeptical manner, you know, without trying to, to offend you whatsoever. Now, going back to 1987, let's, let's talk about what you went through. You, you mentioned Project Luna, as in Moon. Tell me about the, 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 the name again and what it was, that project. Um, project Moonshadow, uh, actually, I think is the project you're thinking of, and that was the project uh, that I was put into as the super soldier program I was put into as a kid. Uh, when I, If I said Luna, I referred to Luna Operations Command. Which That's what I meant. The, the, the lunar base there, yeah, it's called Luna Operations Command. Okay, do you know who Niara Isley is, by the way? Um, say that name again, please. Niara Isley. Mm, uh, it's I've heard it, but no, I, I can't say that it's uh, that I, I know exactly who that is. Or what she that was is. in the Air Force, I believe, 1983, and a few years after that, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, she recounts of her story how she was taken to the moon and all the horrific things that she went through. Just wanted to know if you have heard of her story. No, I haven't. That's interesting. I, I will make a note of that, try and look that up, because I'm always interested in, in learning more information. It's, it's again, it's seven decades of, of data that uh, is hard for any single one person, even researchers who are dedicated to the subject, to know really all of it. Okay, so 1987, that, that's when you were taken for 20 years. Let's right. start in chronological order. Uh, right, so in 1987, essentially taken out of my room to a underground base, which I believe was somewhere in the middle of New Mexico, and then taken aboard an Aurora TRB-3, which is a big black triangular uh, military vehicle, taken to Luna Operations Command uh, for a pretty short period of time, mostly for processing, uh, which is... Uh, you know, a couple of medical tests, medical surveys, and then a sit down with a junior officer to discuss, you know, contractual obligations and, you know, sign this thick, you know, initial, 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 uh, this big, thick contract to talk about your 20 year tour and what will happen when you come back and memory repression for security reasons, yada, yada. You do get sort of an explanation and a brief on all that. Uh, and then after all that's done, everyone was sort of stuck onto a pretty good size uh, transport vehicle, which people always ask me to describe it, and I will continue to have a slightly difficult time describing it because the scale of the hangar bay when we you know, walked in was just so large, uh, and it's difficult to scale exactly how far away something is, how tall something is. So I want to say, you know, it was at least six, 700 feet wide and at least you know 70 80 feet high but you know three four stories or something maybe like that at least uh um, Th that's what it felt like when you were inside the alleged tr3b no 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 this was after uh we were on the moon okay had gone through processing signed the contracts and were being put onto a much larger another much larger transport but before you went to the moon, from here, you were taken from here, how long did the trip take? Were you conscious while you were traveling from Earth to the moon? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the basically kind of a not unlike uh, what standard seating in a military aircraft would be, actually. So pretty much 
the same, you know, seats and chairs and cushions that they contract from these other military contractors. They're putting in the same vehicles. Uh, they're not putting like super cool space, you know, style stuff in it. They're using, you know, contracted military contractor equipment. So on the inside, they look pretty standard in that sense, you know, metal and chairs. And sat down, strap in, and I'd say it was less than, you know, a two-hour ride from Earth to the Luna Operations Command. Did you feel how fast it was? Obviously, there was some kind of anti-gravitical properties, you know, with the TR-3B if it was traveling that fast and you didn't feel it. Right. No, it definitely has an inertial... Uh, Electro, I'm sorry, a magnetogravitic field that essentially creates its own gravitational field so that, no, you don't really experience inertia or anything else like that at all. So two hours, and did you land on, uh, on the side of the moon that faces us or on the other side? Oh, on the dark side, absolutely, for sure. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff on the dark side, and, and it's really quite visible when you start getting closer and closer to the surface of it. Some pretty large buildings, large structures. A number of bases that aren't just ours. There are other ET bases that are there. Sort of a uh, a treaty zone, an international treaty zone, or intergalactic treaty zone. So that there are these other ETs that have bases there and our base, so that we, you know, don't interfere or attack one another. There's a you know a truce and so forth. Did we really go to the moon in 1969? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, we did. With the same astronauts, you know, the whatever they say is true. Is what you're saying? Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. No, I've certainly been asked this question before, and what I've noticed in people trying to explore, go with the theory that we didn't go to the moon, one of the main uh, pieces of evidence that they like to use are all of these photographs, which, you know, have, you know, rocks with markings on them or something. They appear to be have been taken on a soundstage. Well, they were taken on a soundstage. It's not a secret that there was a soundstage that they were doing training experience, uh, experiments on and so forth, and they were filming, uh, you know, those training missions and so forth there. It's not a top-secret event that they were doing that. I, my theory, uh, based on information that I have talked with other people, you know, my chain of command and so forth about, is, you know, you brought back a bunch of pictures and, you know, maybe it was... One of the first times you had a conventional camera that you were using to try and take pictures on the moon, and maybe some of them didn't come out very well. Maybe the lighting didn't work very well. Uh, you got a media campaign to run back home. You need some pictures. So I think they had some crappy real pictures, uh, and they needed some better pictures. And so they had these soundstage pictures that were like, hey, these are great pictures. Let's use these. Uh, and so they naturally just used the pictures that they had that looked good, and weren't going to admit that, you know, they weren't the actual pictures because that would somehow make people feel, oh, you didn't show us the real pictures of the moon? So they just, you know, like to go with a lie once they go with it. And so the, the, those particular photographs, yeah, they were taken on a soundstage, but that doesn't mean we didn't go to the moon. I think there are other photographs that were actually taken on the moon that show that we were on the moon. But uh, I think they were also taking a lot of photographs of things that they couldn't show us that were classified. Uh, certainly Sergeant Carl Wolf, who's a, a whistleblower, has talked about working at the, for the Air Force and working in the photo lab, uh, when the photos were coming back from the lunar orbiter and working on a piece of equipment and having another airman explain to him, oh, look, we found bases on the moon and showing him, you know, these, uh, black and white, these gray slides of bases on the moon and so forth. So there are some really good pictures of some really good things on the moon that certainly were very, very real, uh, but we couldn't show them. Uh, certainly couldn't show them in the papers and show them to the media. So they, I think they went with what they could show people, which were these obviously clean and sanitary pictures from these sound stages that didn't have anything compromising in them. There were and two feeds. There were two feeds. One was going through Australia and another one going through California. Correct me if I'm wrong. But at the same time, it was being what we saw on TV was a camera pointing at a NASA monitor. And that is what the world was viewing. Why was that? Um, I couldn't necessarily answer that. Uh, I, I don't know every detail about the moon mission or the, or the moon operation. All I can say is that there was absolutely a moon mission that happened. And there was certainly an effort to keep some of what was happening secret and to film and, and radio some things that were secret and to cut off transmissions when... Uh, you know, Buzz started saying something about, oh, we see it, it's right over there. Like, oh, turn that off. 
You know, there, there's a number of incidences, you know, in that story that demonstrate that something was actually happening that was real, as well as some covert activity that they didn't want the public to know about. So um, I don't think that there's any, I think there's plenty of evidence, again, to suggest that it actually happened, but, you know, we certainly still haven't, NASA's not telling the full truth of what they know about what happened on the original moon mission, that's for sure. That's fine. Just wanted to get your quick take on that. Now, going back to your the trip to the moon for the first time, you landed. Now, tell me about processing. Once you got out of, of the TF-3B, tell me about what happened. Uh, essentially, escorted, walked down some lengthy corridors uh, from sort of one location to another, put into sort of a temporary uh, barracks, which is not much more than like a small, you know, military dorm room, much more than that, like a two-bedroom or something, uh, temporary housing, and then walked to a medical facility and, you know, examined, laid out on a medical cot and, you know, light shined in you and people poking at you and sticking things and drawing blood and so forth, very typical medical exam stuff. Uh, coming back to the temporary uh, quarters again, uh, being escorted to the administration area to talk about your contract, initial, initial, initial sign the contract, and then escorted back to the temporary barracks, and then after some rest period, uh, being escorted out of the temporary barracks down to the main hangar and then onto this large transport ship. Describe uh, the construction and were you breathing normally? Under in the base that we were at was underground. You know, I mean, it was not on the surface of the moon. We were not, you know, out in the open or that in any way under a dome or something that I could see. I mean, we, it, I got the deep impression that we were underground. And when we left the hangar, I definitely could see that we had been underground. So it felt underground. Uh, but it pretty typical, you know, concrete military base kind of construction, circa the 1950s. You know, so lots of concrete and rebar and, you know, stone tile and... Air stuff. conditioning vents, just like a normal military yeah, base? metal vents and, you know, whistling of fans and just completely standard, you know, military industrial technology of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Were you able to come out to the surface at any given point? Um, not that I can ever recall in the times that I was there, no. And... Do you have to wear oxygen masks when you're on the moon? Uh, again, since I don't ever recall being on the surface of the moon, I'm only speculating that that does appear to be the case. It does that you need, you know, breathing apparatus on the moon. But I, I don't know that for sure, since I don't recall being on the surface at all. What about your fellow, uh, dare I call it, the soldiers or officers? How many travel with you during that trip from the Earth to the moon first? The the transport vehicle had levels, so I can only speculate how exactly how many levels and approximately how many personnel, but I'd say it was, you know, a good 2,500, 3,000, maybe even 3,500 people on that transport. 3,500 people in a, in a TR-3B? No, 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 no. This was a, a much, when we left the moon, this was a much, much, much larger vehicle. Okay. Had a very different shape. Uh, it was had what you would call sort of a chrome reflective finish to it. So as the TRB3 is a very black, sort of a matte finish. So this was, you know, chrome to reflective. Uh, the front of it was pretty round and the, I don't know if I can call them anything other than wings, but they sort of tapered off. But they're not aeronautical wings in the sense that they, you know, have flaps or they bring lift in that sense. But there were, you know, wings to the shape of it. Uh, and then it sort of backside moved into kind of a teardrop shape, and then what would be sort of between the third and fifth floor was, you know, a window for the cockpit. Anything of, so, anything of significance that you can report, because I like to move in steps, that you can report during your stay on the moon, and that seems to be a very temporary stop. Was that a temporary stop only? Yes, absolutely. No, it was just for processing. Stop on the moon, processing, sign the contracts. You're out of here. I mean, we were there for less than a day. Were you communicating with any of your peers about what was happening? No. We were kept pretty isolated and pretty separate uh, during the processing period. Okay. So now you're in a different type of aircraft. Who was piloting it? Do you know? 
Was it ours? Uh, the pilot, I did, I sort of identified himself over the loudspeaker, but did not, you know, necessarily say his name or we didn't get to see him, but, you know, he did say Was it human is what I'm not asking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he certainly sounded it. Like, again, we didn't get to see him, but he, he talked and sounded completely normal and human and presumed that he was another member of the force like everybody else around us. There were and, no extraterrestrials on that vehicle at this time at all. Okay, so no, any... Well, you know, that extraterrestrials, they might look just like you and I. Any non-humans that were working with us during that time? Uh, none that I encountered at that time. Okay. And from the moon to Mars, how long did it take in that bigger aircraft? Um, the first thing the pilot wanted Spacecraft. to do... Spacecraft. Certainly. But the first thing the pilot wanted to do before we left the moon for Mars was to take a good last look at Earth. So he kind of does this you know, pulls into Earth a little closer. The ceiling turns into a, a giant view screen. The whole ceiling does, uh, which is a pretty awesome effect in of itself. The ceiling becomes its own sort of projection window. And you're sort of leaned back in this lounge. He's kind of hot looking through what appears to be this most giant window in the world, looking at the Earth. And there's this very, you know, take a nice long look and, you know, this is what we're coming back for. This is what we're fighting for, yada, yada. And that was when you were there. Was it 1987? Correct. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say, 1987 you were taken, but when you were there on the moon on the way to Mars, was it 1987 for you as well? Absolutely. Yeah, no, no. That the, ac the actual chronological time when that was taking place was, yeah, November the 18th slash 19th, 1987. Okay. The day after, you know, that I was taken. Okay. And all right. So the pilot uh, gave you one last uh, view of our good old Earth. How long did it take? Um, you know, it was a nice, felt like a nice long look. I mean, like we stared for 10, 15, 20 minutes. I don't know. Uh, it was kind of a timeless moment in that sense too. You're just kind of staring at the planet, this very awesome thing. And I, and I don't, you know, want to belittle the word awesome in that sense. It really is this amazing, awesome thing that you're staring at looking at the planet. So it's sort of this timeless, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And then he was like, okay, we'll be leaving now. And then I want to say 15 minutes later, we were arrived in the orbit of Mars. So 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Yeah, that vehicle definitely, uh, you know, made traveled via wormhole. So that vehicle did not, you know, tick, 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 tick all the way to Mars. It was not linear. Yeah, no, it, it flew via wormhole and folded space and got there. Yeah, that's why we were there in less than 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Okay, so tell me now, as you're approaching the orbit of Mars, what happened? Um, You know, the pilot again was like, here we are. We've arrived at our destination. We'll be touching down on Mars momentarily. Uh, the vehicle, you know, came down through the thin Martian atmosphere, landed on the ground, uh in a place called Ares Primus, which is the headquarters of the Mars Colony Corporation, and dropped us off. And we just walked out the gangplank right into the open Martian air. It was the freakiest thing ever. Because I, I wasn't expecting breathable air. Hold on, let me jump in. I, I Forgive me for doing this, but if, I, if not, I'll forget. You, you said Mars Colony Corporation. Does this mean that this is a private entity? Um... I don't know how the entire structure works. All I can say from what I understand is that not unlike how, you know, the, um, in, in a similar way that the Virginia Colony Corporation was set up, you know, when it came to America to, to sort of establish a colony in the Americas, the Mars Colony Corporation is, is a setup of, of private interest, military and, 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 uh, private personnel to create a corporation that is essentially the Mars Colony Corporation. Yeah, so it's a, it's funded by private interests for the most part, as well as a sort of national military state interest. But I don't really understand or know the exact economics and machinations of that, other than to say that it's an organization which gets all of its funding personnel from a military and state apparatus. But on paper, yeah, it's its own... Uh, the Mars Colony Corporation. Is I problem. ask you. I ask you because it reminds me of uh, the movie Prometheus. They have the no, Wayland. I I'm oh, sorry. I no, that's that, fine. That's I fine. But they have the Wayland Corporation that was oh. financing the whole trip to to you know trying to find our ancestors and our uh, the Anunnaki and so on. All right. So you 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 made it to Mars. 
Tell me, for the moment you landed, what happened? Uh, like again, I said, the uh, gangplank came open. We walked out into cool, uh, thin, breathable air, which was, again, very shocking. I was not anticipating that at all. Uh, it was, again, thin and cool, um, but I could feel the sun on my face, could feel warm heat. Uh, could on the surface. Cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, it was quite incredible. Um, now, it's, it's not the same, you know, brightness and the same feeling as staring up at the sky at the sun here. We're a bit closer. But even though it's a bit farther away, it's not, it's not as lesser of an experience as, as you might think. I mean, the sun is still really big and blazing hot. So even though the, you know, you're, you're a bit farther away and Mars can be way colder in places than it can be here, but that experience of being out in that direct sun, you know, feeling that on your skin, you can feel real warmth and real heat for sure. Well, if they have a thinner atmosphere, then the the temperature extremes should be there. You know, mm. hotter in certain areas, colder in certain areas. You know, maybe on your ankles, it might feel cooler than, than your head or vice versa. Right. Yeah, we didn't know when we were stationed, which, you know, at this moment, we're just arriving in sort of what is, you know, uh, more of the equatorial region. Uh, we were assigned to a place that was much farther north, and we didn't really go outside at that point without an environment suit. Okay. And seeing the surface for the first time, did you see the same reddish color that NASA portrays it to be or not? It's, um... Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. Of course, Mr. L. Wake up slowly, but don't move yet. You will need time to recover, and welcome back. My name is Void Kampf. I am your hard-headed shrink. My genetic team handled the damaged DNA in your head. You are as good as new. I will help you adjust to all things changed. Keep you up to date. Now, tell me the last thing you remember.
Andrew D. Bashago, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.